arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. 10 toxic cleaning product chemicals that you should avoid. Even that in small amounts these toxic ingredients aren't likely to be a problem. The real danger arises when we are repeatedly exposed to these chemical cleaning products and in combinations that haven't been studied. 1. 2-butoxyethanol 2-BE This chemical is listed as a toxic substance under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act on the basis that it is harmful to human health. 2. Phthalate Phthalate are known as endocrine disruptors. They can also cause reproductive problem. 3. Ammonia. Ammonia may also cause kidney and liver damage. 4. Coal tar dyes. Petrochemicals derived products that may contain trace amounts of heavy metals like arsenic, cadmium, and lead. 5. Nonylphenol ethoxylates NPE. Several chemicals in this class are listed as toxic substances under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. 6. Quaternary ammonium compounds, quads, irritants and sensitizers that can induce an allergic response following contact with the skin. 7. Triclosan. Triclosan is an aggressive antibacterial agent that can promote the growth of drug-resistant bacteria. 8. Chlorine. The health risks from chlorine can be acute, and they can be chronic, it's a respiratory irritant at an acute level. 9. Phosphates. High concentrations of phosphates in bodies of water can promote harmful algal blooms and increase weed growth. Certain algae blooms produce chemicals that are toxic to animals and people who drink the water. 10. Sodium hydroxide, also known as lye and caustic soda, highly corrosive, can burn the eyes, skin, and lungs and as a respiratory irritant. Sodium hydroxide. Clayton tells Jones it's a 7 to 8 pH level, a diluted cleaner that may have killed Webster Howard. Misty later says there was a corrosive cleaner in JB's dog also. She thought and JB thought that Webster did it. Webster denied it to JB. Sodium hydroxide in the cleaner at the track. With Coco far away with JB and not divulging his location to Jones, Jones becomes suspicious about Coco's motives. Jones finally gets to interview Mabel Howard inside the Howard house with Strickland. But lingering outside, hiding in the bushes, is Clyde Hooper. Later, Mabel flees the scene with Trooper O'Connell. Jones wants to know more about her and her relationship with O'Connell. A lot of hidden things that Jones is trying to uncover, including the napkin R slash L. Here is episode three of The Handyman's Secret by Robert P. Fitton, starting right now. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 10. Jones brought three coffees and a dozen donuts out of Big Mama's Donut Shop in Prince William. Captain Moxie in his brown and green trooper uniform and George Strickland sat in an unmarked state cruiser. Strickland popped open the rear door and Jones slid inside. Here you go, guys. Thank you, said Captain Moxie, a man with dark, boxed sideburns. Moxie read the Big Mama's slogan, Drink up and beat it. She actually said that, said Strickland. Great for business, said Jones. George, 
I'm worried about O'Connell. Well, it's possible, said Strickland, taking his coffee, that someone may have gone after O'Connell. Well, it's not like O'Connell just to take off, said Moxie, gripping the cup in his hand. Something is dead wrong, dead wrong. Jones thought about J.B. in the stables. I need to check something. Sure, go ahead. Jones grabbed his coffee and exited the cruiser. He dialed Coco. The line rang as darkness settled over Canal Street along the water in Prince William. The Big Mama's neon sign brightened orange, and taillights glowed on the Crosstown Bridge. Jonesy. Are you with J.B.? Not right now. Hey, I should be back by the end of the week. You're serious with her? Yeah, we hit it off, that's all. She said she had her horse up at the Fletcher stables, and I found out that her dog was poisoned. I'm wondering if she tried to poison Webster. What, are you crazy? This woman is a nice kid. Sometimes you look for trouble, Jonesy. Jones walked along the donut shop window. He sipped his coffee. She was there at the track when Webster was sick. I can't prove poison, but if it's there, I will. Then you have nothing. We'll find out why she was at the track. You're the one who thought Bucky did something to Vinny. Maybe it was her. Jonesy, you don't get it. J.B. has nothing to do with what happened to Howard. Well, just keep your eyes open. I asked you to talk to Driscoll. What are you doing, just playing tiddlywinks with him? Coco hung up and Jones looked at the phone. He walked back to the cruiser and got in the back seat. Hot date, Matthias? said Strickland, smiling. Jones shook his head. What about that Howard woman? asked Moxie. She has no credibility with me, said Jones. Why? asked Moxie. The woman is either living beyond her means or has new money somehow, said Strickland. Brand new Mercedes, house redone? Moxie wiped his face with a big mama's napkin. Well, she did argue with her husband before he went out to sea. You think she did it? She didn't do it, said Strickland. Well, you don't know that, George. You be good to me, Matthias, or I'll send Hooper over to your house. Hooper. Can I ask you a favor, Mario? Sure. This guy Hooper says he's a detective. He keeps turning up in this investigation. Full name, Clyde Hooper. Can your people find out if he's for real? Clyde Hooper, asked Moxie moving his silver pen across his notebook. Right, he may even be monitoring us now. You're kidding. Jones looked down Main Street. He says he was in UK intelligence services. Moxie turned around to the back seat. Well, I'll run a check on him. With a clipboard full of Clyde Hooper's notes in his hands, Locke surveyed the stables and the barnyard beyond. He thumbed through the first few pages and stroked his chin. Hooper had detailed conversations, photographs, and statements from people who knew Webster Howard, yet he had no conclusions about the murder. Lark glided over to the horses and the attendants. Well, it's about time, Lark, said Flo from atop a caramel-colored horse. I'm just checking Detective Hooper's notes before we go riding. I do not want a doubt remaining about my innocence. Oh, Snickums, nobody thinks you killed Webster. Confidentially, I hope he doesn't solve the murder. I don't want to have to shell out the money. He said gratis, but that's if he doesn't solve the murder. And he's getting close. I'll fire him. Can I take your clipboard, sir? asked the attendant. No, no, no. This is confidential information. Excuse me? Carry on, carry on. Sir, you need to hold on to the saddle while you ride. No one needs to tell an old cowboy how to ride, right, Flo? Lark placed his foot in the stirrup, but had trouble swinging his large torso over the saddle. Another attendant appeared from the stable. 
Both attendants pushed Lark's buttocks upward, and he plopped into the saddle. Still holding the clipboard, he grabbed the saddle horn, but he fought to keep his balance. Lark, I really wonder if you should be carrying that clipboard, said Flo. I assure you, Snookums, my riding experience spans forty years. I am quite capable of... The horse lurched forward. Lark nearly lost the clipboard and pulled back on the reins, stopping the rowdy horse. Whoa, whoa! Lark, you're going to kill yourself! The horse pranced forward. I have the situation under control. Flo's horse paralleled Lark along the stone wall lining the wooded trail, but Lark remained mesmerized by the yellow line pages. Lark, that clipboard is bothering me. Hooper will give us the ammunition we need to find Webster's murderer. He seems like a very strange person. Genius is always strange. The attendant grimaced. The shadows from the tree branches cut down the sun's glare across the pages. He removed a pen from his pocket and circled the paragraph about Webster Howard's argument with his wife. Now this is important, I know it is. Lark, would you please hold on to the saddle? I'm under control, Flo. Lark looked up as another rider galloped between the trees along the distant hill. He flipped to the next page as the horse trampled along the path. The sound of the horse hooves grew louder as he read Hooper's summary of the coroner's report. Lark, somebody is coming. Oh, there's room for all of us. He ran his finger along the print. Lark, will you pay attention? A woman with wispy blonde hair shot over the hill. Lark's horse jerked left and accelerated up the embankment. The clipboard flipped into the air. As he frantically reached for the saddle horn, he slid over the horse's rear quarter down into the pine needles. Air was forced from his lungs, and the tree branches swung as he blacked out. When he opened his eyes, Flo was silhouetted against the blue sky and leafy branches. Oh, Lark, don't be dead. Oh, he's conscious, said a squeaky voice. Without his glasses, he had difficulty seeing the woman with the blonde hair leaning toward him. Are you all right, sir? Snooky, Snooky, pass that ball. Snooky, long, get the long yardage, get the long yardage. Brownie, Brownie, stop that clock, Brownie, stop that clock. Oh, Lark, you're hallucinating. The pep rally. Find out who we have assigned to the pep rally. We have to beat Norwich. Find Snooky. Has anyone seen Snooky McKenzie? Without his glasses, the thick green foliage blurred and the birds chirped through the forest. Flo and a younger woman knelt next to him. Lark, can you hear me? Yes, I hear you, Flo. Flo placed his glasses over his eyes. The freckled, brown-eyed blonde seemed concerned. Yes, yes, that's better. You don't have the heebie-jeebies, do you? Oh, no, no. You took quite a tumble, she said in a whimsical voice. She grasped his hand firmly and Lark staggered to his feet. Oh, thank you, miss, said Flo. You're lucky you weren't seriously hurt. You look familiar. Oh, he's Lark Larson, said Flo. You do know who you are, don't you, Lark? I think so. I th think I'm Lark Larson. The blonde seemed confused. Oh, Hamilton coach, retired now. I relinquish the helm to Matthias Jones. Well, I'm glad you're okay. She stood and looked over the horses grazing by the stone wall. Flo reached for the clipboard, yellow pad still intact, and handed it to Lark. Well, that should teach you a lesson, Lark. What, to have a less jittery horse? No, to concentrate on what you're doing, said Flo. Well, you two have a better ride, said the blonde as she mounted her black sheen horse. Are you sure you're okay? Fine, fine. I never felt better in my life. 
What was your name, Miss? Misty McNamee. Misty, said Flo, you are going to be our guest tonight for a meal, a free meal at the Colonial House. Now, wait a minute, Flo, said Locke as he staggered to his feet. Thank you, but I wouldn't want to impose. Oh, we insist, said Flo. You saved Locke's life. My trainer, J.B., always tells me never to pass up a free meal. Well, that was my line, said Locke, putting his hands on his hips. Well, you can bring him along. No, she's away on vacation. She taught me how to show my horse. Show him where, asked Locke. What do you say? Lark and I will be at the Colonial House tonight. Sure, thanks. We'll see you around six. Misty climbed on her horse. She kicked aside and his mighty muscles tense. Then she galloped down the trail toward the stable. Lark breathed deeply as Flo dusted off his sweater and pants. What a nice girl, Lark. I'm not spending a dime for that meal, Flo. You'll have to pick up the tab yourself. Lark Larson, you know I have a whole room of coupons. We won't pay a cent. Oh, said Lark, stroking his chin. Then he rubbed his hands together. Whoa, in that case, Bob Appetit. Oh, Lark, you mean Bon Appetit. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 11. Bucky stood by the music conservatory beyond the centerfield fence. He held up the binoculars and spoke into a walkie-talkie. His voice echoed somewhere behind the backstop as Woozy hit fly balls to the outfielders before the game. 10-4. 10-4, M5. Coach Jones is studying the open lineups. Jones threw down his lineup book. He jogged to the corner of the bleachers and stopped. A series of cars and the Norwich team bus was parked along Hall Road. He located Hooper, sitting on a fold-out chair in the back of his tiny blue pickup. In his hand was a huge, military-style radio. Jones marched toward the street. Take out your digital camera, Walter. I hear you, M5. Digital camera activated. Jones turned onto the sidewalk as Hooper spoke into the radio. I want photos of Jones performing his duties. Jones increased his pace and his anger surged. Understood, M5. Prepare for departure in ten minutes. Jones grabbed the edge of the truck and vaulted himself upward. Hooper's eyes opened wide and the radio flung out of his hand. Bucky's voice sounded from the bottom of the truck bed. Ah, I need to have something in my stomach. I'm stuck. Hello, M5. M5. I want to go over to Big Mama's Donuts. Jones picked up Hooper by the edge of his army jacket. You listen to me, Hooper. You get in this little truck of yours and get off the campus. See here, Jones, you have no legal justification. Bucky's voice stung in his ears from below. Hello, M5, hello. Jones grabbed the radio. You listen to me, Bucky. You get that fat butt of yours over to my bench. Uh, I'm not here. It's Coach Jones. I don't recognize your authority. If you're not over to that bench in 30 seconds, you'll be explaining it to Strickland. Out in center field, Bucky slipped and picked up his radio. He waddled toward Hamilton Street and then jogged, slipping down the sidewalk. Jones held on to Hooper's radio as he leaped onto the street. He pointed at Hooper, now on his feet. Leave now. I want this truck off campus. My radio! Ah, grumbled Jones, waving his hand through the air. He met Bucky on the bench a half a minute later. He dragged him around the bleachers. Bucky looked skyward and whistled. 
You listen to me, Bucky. I have my rights. Yeah, that's nice. Now give me your radio. You'll have to talk to my lawyer. Jones grabbed the radio. You're done with Hooper. I'm going to ask you one question. Silence is a great peacemaker. Or you'll answer in George Strickland's jail cell. Bucky looked to where Hooper's truck had been parked. Then he smiled and leaned toward Jones. Heh, what do you want to know? Was Webster Howard poisoned at the racetrack? Ah, oh, gee, uh, could be. What do you mean, could be? How was he poisoned? That woman said he was dehydrated. What woman? The brunette. Va, 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 voom, he said, making the outline of a woman's figure with his hands. How do you know that? She was gorgeous. So was Misty. Forget Misty. How can I? I think I'm in love. Talking about the thermos, Bucky. Oh, did you see her add anything to the thermos? No, but Webster got sick right after that. I know what happens when your stomach goes ba-ba-boom. Does this mean I won't be going to jail? Jones pointed at him. Hamilton Fletcher is already not happy with you for working with Hooper, so word to the wise. Huh? Or whatever. Just go back to your duties at the college, Bucky. Jones started toward the bench. I'll think about it. Jones turned and held up his cell. I can call George right now. He punched in Clayton Morris's number on his cell as Bucky scampered around the corner. Clayton Morris. Clayton, this is Matthias. Good afternoon, sir. Webster Howard. Yeah. That irritation in his throat and stomach, it might have been poison. Well, I'm not up to speed. I'm sorry. Did, did Everett find that? No, no one mentioned it. Why do you say that? Circumstantial evidence. We're releasing the body later this afternoon. I'd follow up, Clayton, or you'll be digging up. I'll say. I'll call George after my game. The pitcher cocked his arm and released a sizzling fastball, but the umpire's raspy voice declared Willie Fox had struck out. Jones rolled his eyes and headed toward Willie. Get him next time, Will. Come on, Larry, get a piece of it, kid. Start the rally. Jones scanned the sheared grass and smoothed dirt diamond. Players pounded their gloves and called in support to the pitcher. Tom McGill wandered over behind the backstop and raised his hand. Jones waved back as the pitcher hummed one by Larry. Come on, Larry, hit away. Hit away. Back toward the gym, along the fence, Hooper's truck sounding like a lawnmower slowed. The pitcher's racing slider caught the outside corner. Hang in there, Larry, hang in there. Jones backed along the bench and met McGill by the water fountain. Tough game, coach. Shouldn't be. Is that your headline, Tom? Depends. Jones heard the ball smack against the catcher's mitt, and the umpire's voice boomed out again. He looked into McGill's chestnut eyes. Here comes Sabota. We need the long ball, Tom. Jones cupped his hands. Come on, Joe, hit one out of here. Just got off the computer. Oh, I can't find R slash L. Sabota took a prodigious cut and missed the ball. Come on, Joey, just meet it. I'm beginning to think that someone has gotten away with murder, said Jones crack of the wood against the ball resounded across the baseball field. When Jones turned the baseball arc toward the oak cluster in center field, the Norwich center fielder watched the ball float over his head and over the chain-link fence. This time it rolled right up to the stone shaker-style music conservatory. Jones was ecstatic and rushed forward and stood with the rest of the team at home plate as the large-framed Sabota rounded third. They surrounded him as if they had just won the game. Jones patted him on the back and escorted him back to the bench. 
He gave me my pitch, coach, high and outside. What a hit. Not many people have cleared the center field fence like that, Joey. Jones was still smiling when he started back toward McGill. Along the fence, Hooper's truck moved backward at high speed. What is he doing now? Oh, Hooper, he's driving backwards. Told him to get off campus. The guy's a crank. He's dangerous. Don't look now, Matthias, but the game's over. I'll catch you in a minute, Torm. Jones lined up with his players as they moved forward, shaking the Norwich players' hands. When he met the overweight, aging Huck Tewksbury, he grasped the Norwich coach with both hands. Huck, good game. I told Sabota that was one hell of a hit. Let's see if we can get together and do some fishing later this summer. Yeah, we had a good time last year. I'll call you. After his team meeting in center field, and as some of his team had already exited the locker room, Jones and McGill saw Hooper's truck pull behind the backstop. They ran briskly across the infield and rounded the fence. Lark and Flo were seated next to Hooper in the front seat. Jones rushed up to the driver's side window. Hooper, what do you think you're doing? I'm calling the DA. I have a significant break in the Howard case, Jones. McGill moved closer and seemed perplexed by Hooper. We'll find answers now, and you can thank Locke Larson. I may forego my fee on all of this. Well, what's the big break? asked McGill. Hooper leaned out the window. He waved Jones closer and spoke in a low voice as he looked at McGill. Can he be trusted? He's a friend of mine. What's the info? asked Jones. <laughs> you never know who's lurking out there. Just tell me what you've learned. Come on, Hooper. Hooper raised his brows and glanced at Lark. Flo tilted toward the window. Lark almost died. What? Lark and Flo stepped from the truck. What happened, Lark? He was thrown from a horse, said Flo. I thought we were going to lose him. Oh, I was back in time. Shaken up, asked Jones. Snooky McKenzie was going to run the ball. Did you break anything, asked Jones. I have to report that I'm ship-shape. Did you have x-rays, Lark, or have a doctor look at you? Hooper wrapped Jones's arm. Don't insult his manhood, Jones. Well, it might be smart if you're 72 years old and you fall off a horse to get checked out. Jones stepped back from the window. What's the break in the case, Hooper? Hooper waved him over again. We've located the mystery woman. Oh, at the stables, no doubt. Ah, brilliant deductive powers, Jones. McGill pinched the bridge of his nose. Who is she? Are you in this case in an official capacity? Asked Hooper. He owns the Enterprise. Come on, Hooper, who is she? Well, we, uh... He doesn't know, said Jones, stepping back from the van. Unbelievable. Well, we know where she is. Where's that? Asked McGill. Are you sure he can be trusted? Asked Hooper. Oh, boy. Oh, the Fletcher stables across from the estate, yelled Lark. Not so loud, Lark, said Hooper. But what about the woman, asked Jones. I thought nothing of it until Detective Hooper put the whole thing together. A blonde woman with freckles and dark eyes saved Lark's life. So there, it's obvious, wouldn't you say, Jones? What about the off-road vehicle, Hooper? Well, I haven't seen that. Uh... Have you been out there, Hooper? asked Jones. No, not yet. I thought we might go out there together, wrap this thing up. Why don't I go out there alone, Detective Hooper, and I'll report back to you. No, no, I insist. Yeah, he's going out there anyways, Matthias, said McGill. If you're smart, you'll keep him in line. Jones glanced at Hooper. You heard me before, Hooper. Get off campus. Hooper started the truck's strange, loud engine. 
He was about to speak with Jones, but slowly moved away. Well, I look forward to the big game today, said Lark. Game's over, Lark. We're in first. It reminds me of Skeeter Higglebaum. He hit one over the conservatory trees. Lark still has the ball in formaldehyde. Oh, that's great. Over the trees? Yeah, okay, Lark, said Jones, waving at Leo Crowley by the bench. Well, I'm showering and I'm heading over to the Colonial House. We had a free meal last night with coupons from Flo. Well, congratulations, said Jones as he started toward the locker room. We had a wonderful dinner with Misty McNamee from the Fletcher Stables. I'll catch you later, Lark, said Jones as he headed for the exit. Awful about that dog, Flo, said Lark. Jones stopped. Wait a minute. You had dinner with the blonde from the stables last night? Who had poisoned a dog, Lark? A mean person, Snookums, a mean person. Jones started back. Whose dog was poisoned? Janet. Janet Boudreaux? Yes, Janet Boudreaux. What happened? I guess Webster got blamed. Nice of you to tell me this, Lark. Well, we don't think he did it, said Flo. She got into it with Webster. I guess she threatened him. He said the dog must have eaten something in the wild. Lark, you may have just blown this case wide open. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 12 Just after sunrise, Jones stood on his patio. He thought about taking his tent speed out to unwind along the bay. Once again, he grabbed his cell phone off the umbrella table. For the fifth time since the Norwich game, he placed a call to Coco's cell phone. The line rang and immediately switched to voicemail. Coco never had a greeting. Hey, Coco, I'm getting a sinking feeling in my stomach. Called you five times. Listen to me. I won't leave any message because I don't want to know what's going on here. If you get this call, call me back right away. Jones sent the message and hung up. The phone sounded. Listen, Jonesy, don't be giving me any lip. I'm out here with JB. Where? Hey. Two things are at the top of my list, Coco. Did JB tell you that her dog was poisoned? What the hell are you talking about? And Hooper thinks that Webster was poisoned at the track. Well, Hooper's a fool. If I checked the two, she could have blamed Webster. He was both at the stables and at the track. And the dog was poisoned at the stables. You need to ask her about both those things. Look, I ain't asking her nothing. I think Webster's being sick at the track is because of poison, and Clayton Morris has delayed the funeral until he checks it out. Good. You go play coroner, Jonesy. I'm finishing the rest of my time off. I'll talk to you. Jones held out the phone and then kicked the leg of his umbrella table. His fear was that Coco had gone off on a fling with someone who might have tried twice to kill Webster Howard in an act of revenge, he reluctantly called George Strickland. Hello. George. Matthias. Mary and I are just having breakfast and are watching the sunrise. George, I have information. The wind hit Strickland's cell phone. What do you got? The woman at the bridge, Janet Boudreau. Somebody poisoned her dog. How do you know this? Another woman at the stables named Misty McNamee. I think it's related to Webster being sick at the track. You're saying the same person who poisoned the dog tried to poison Webster. Let me ask you, George, if somebody poisoned your dog, how would you feel? I'd want to get the guy who did it. Now, wait a minute. You need more information other than accusing Boudreaux of going after Webster. I 
suppose you think she murdered him, too. Well, what was she doing on the Marina Bridge? And why isn't she here now? Well, it's worth looking into, but I wouldn't jump to conclusions. She may have done something to Webster at the track. I don't know, but Clayton is rechecking Everett Stubble's autopsy. He's looking at that irritation in Webster's throat and stomach. That's what he told me last night. Webster's funeral is tomorrow morning, and now it's postponed until Clayton is done. I'm not a forensic pathologist, but Stubble should have caught that poison in the initial autopsy. Then that's why he's rechecking. Stubble went after the obvious. It's not very professional. Well, it's not like Clayton to hire somebody like that. Stubble is Herbert Lane's nephew. Oh, nepotism runs rampant. So O'Connell never brought in the evidence and is on the run with a murdered man's wife whom he was having an affair with, said Jones. Wow. I don't think O'Connell killed Webster, but Boudreaux was on that bridge. Let's go over to the stables later this morning. Stay around 10 and talk to Misty. See you at 10. Jones drove up Route 7 after getting takeout from Franny at the Colonial House. He questioned whether having Lark and Flo meeting him at the stables was a good idea. His cell phone rang and he took it off the seat. Strickland's icon fell the screen. What's the matter, George? You getting cold feet? Add Mabel Howard to the missing. Why do you say that? The house is locked up and that red Mercedes is gone. Keep in mind her sister lives in Millbury. I just called up there. She's not there. Yeah, so what? O'Connell lived in Millbury, according to Wendell, before he was transferred down here. O'Connell did? You think he and Mabel have a relationship? They do. Captain Moxie is unaware of it. Does Wendell know anything? How do you want me to answer that? I don't think O'Connell killed Webster, but Boudreaux was on that bridge. Somebody with strength would have to move Webster's body around. Maybe they both did it, said Jones. I'm right behind you on Route 7. Jones looked in the side mirror. I see you, George. You're speeding. Yeah? Just what are you going to do about it? Your find will be to have Lark and Flo on this interview with Misty. They're the source for the Misty claim. You'll regret it, or I should say I will. Jones turned the jeep into the tree-lined road that bordered the grazing fields toward the Fletcher stables. Strickland followed a few seconds later. Lark and Flo sat in lawn chairs near the first corral, where a blonde-haired rider was practicing dressage in the ring, guided by an older trainer. Well, George, my father used to tell my Aunt May that the more you look into a case, the more confusing it gets. They walked toward Lark and Flo. Well, it certainly is confusing. Lark turned around first. Oh, here they come, Flo. Thanks for coming up here, said Strickland. Matthias, we were just talking about Joe Sabota, that home run yesterday. Yeah, it was quite a drive, Lark. Wait a minute, you missed the game. Well, Bucky Driscoll gave us a play-by-play. Oh, that must have been a joy. The lad reminds me of Smokey Johnson. You remember Smokey, don't you? Jones followed the rider as she executed movements with the dark sheen horse. I can't say that I do, Lark. Now, there was an athlete. Jones's mind drifted back to Boudreaux. Back in 47, he led the division. Smack Bacon followed in his footsteps in 48. Jones gazed into Lark's blue eyes behind the glasses. Was there ever a player, Lark, who didn't have a nickname? Well, there was Boot Willis and Sprint Harris and Snooky McKenzie, or Lark Larson. Right-o! How did you get that name, Lark? asked Jones as the long stables came in sight again. Oh, my mother said I cried like a songbird. 
Things haven't changed much, George, said Jones out of the corner of his mouth. Hooper's voice echoed around the barnyard. You aren't very observant, Jones. Jones scanned the area. You're not invited to this party, Hooper. I have surveyed the terrain and have not found the woman in question. Great, now where are you? asked Jones as he looked around. Hooper backed out of an upper stable loft, binoculars around his army jacket. He crawled onto a side ladder and leaped onto the ground. The blonde is elusive, but I'm not convinced that she contributed to Howard's death. How do you know this? Are you listening to my conversations? I shan't divulge my professional tactics. I told you he was top-notch, Matthias, said Lark. I'm uh, Chief Strickland, Hooper. Hooper saluted and Strickland winced toward Jones. I'm going to have to ask you to leave, Hooper. If you're conducting surveillance, you'll have to answer to the DA. See here, Chief. Do you know who you're dealing with? I'm heavily involved in special ops. I've been awarded... List your accolades somewhere else. I protest this abuse. Strickland removed his handcuffs. Oh, really? Hooper snapped his head upward and walked up to Lark. Oh, you can't win them all, old boy. Oh, you do what you have to do. Hooper out, he said, and then he sprinted toward the woods. Okay, said Strickland. Is that Misty in the ring, Lark? Yes, sirree, Bob. <laughs> George, he said, hitting Strickland's side. Flo giggled. <laughs> and she is meeting with us, right, Lark? asked Jones. Strickland's cell phone rang. George Strickland. Oh, Clayton, yes, he said, moving Jones away from Lark. He put the medical examiner on speaker. George, I found ingestion and retention of sodium hydroxide, a strongly corrosive alkali. Webster had blackish-brown coloration of the skin, mouth, and oral cavity. The contents of the gastrointestinal tract showed a pH level of 7 to 8 on the pH indicator strips. I doubt he took in much or he would have had deeper symptoms or even death on Sunday. Would somebody have poisoned him, Clayton? asked Jones. Maybe not. He could have retained it on his hands from oven cleaners, bathroom cleaners, disinfectants, drain openers, toilet bowl cleaners, or maybe whatever he ingested was just diluted. Thanks, Clayton. Are you releasing the body? asked Strickland. Tomorrow morning. Okay, thanks. What do you think now, George? We need more information, he said as the blonde-haired woman rode her horse toward the stalls. More information? They followed Lark and Flo along the stalls. Maybe I'll buy myself a racehorse with that insurance money. Racing is uh, risky, Lark, said Jones. The nimble blonde in the brown sweater and riding pants set her helmet on the hook. She smiled as they approached. Ah, you must be Chief Strickland and Coach Jones. Right on both counts, said Lark. Thank you, Lark. Thank you, Lark. We'll take it from here. Take what? It's a private conversation, Lark. We promise to keep it hush-hush, right, Snookums? Jones stepped forward. Lark, would you two check on those free riding lessons up front? Free? Lark cleared his throat. I will, of course, look into that for you. Come on, Snookums. Jones waited until Lark and Flo had left the stable. Strickland then stepped forward. Thank you for cooperating, Misty. We understand you're friends with Janet Boudreau. Sure, she started being my trainer, but then we became friends. What happened to her dog? Hunter? Was he poisoned? asked Jones. She nodded. I think he was. The vet said he had a corrosive cleaner in his stomach. I guess it was awful. Who would do that? asked Strickland. Misty raised her light brows. She blamed Webster Howard. Strickland looked at Jones and then back at Misty. Jones slowly shook his head. 
Did she see Webster poison the dog? Well, he was working around the stall all day long, and Hunter was tied in the stall while she gave her lessons. Hunter couldn't breathe. He foamed at the mouth. Did you know Webster? asked Strickland. I knew him from around here. We weren't friends or anything. Jones paced around the barn. Did she confront Webster? Oh, yes. Janet was furious. She never screamed, but she did scream at Webster. Just what did she say? asked Jones as he stopped. He just stared at her. He told her he'd never do anything like that, but she didn't believe him. He was really low-keyed about her tirade. Well, that's odd, said Strickland. Do you think Webster did it? Why would he, said Misty. Unless it was an accident. Where was that stall? asked Jones. She pointed diagonally to the other end of the barn. Right in the corner. Come on down. Jones followed Strickland and Misty through the scattered hay to the far corner. The barn board contained nothing other than horse grooming items and barn maintenance tools. She opened the top door and Jones immediately focused on the cleaning fluid on the far shelf. He walked inside. Carbine premium industrial cleaner. Well, I'm going to call Herbert. We need to check the prints. Jones read the label and turned to Strickland. Sodium hydroxide. Where was the dog? By the chair in the window. Fifteen feet away. Nothing dripped in there. There's a sink outside. What do you use that cleaner for? She shrugged her shoulders. Cleaning, it's not toxic unless you drink it. Wait, said Jones. At the track, Webster mentioned drinking from a thermos that Janet Boudreaux had brought him. That's not good, said Misty. What kind of a car does Boudreaux drive? White Explorer. Well, we're looking for Janet Boudreaux, said Strickland. Please call us. I won't discuss this cleaner thing. Thank you. We'll contact you soon. They both shook her hand. When they stepped into the sunshine, Jones grabbed Strickland's arm. George, I think Janet Boudreau poisoned Webster. But he survived. Jones steered Strickland toward another building as Lark stomped ahead of Flo back to the barn. Oh, I've about reached my Lark quota for the day. But there's one more thing. There's no way Janet Boudreaux dragged Webster onto the maintenance-free. Yet, said Jones, raising his index finger, she was at the bridge. Yeah. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 13 Jones left his house but never told Strickland he was going to speak with Webster Howard's neighbor, Harvey Miller. He continued to question whether Webster funded his wife's extravagant lifestyle or if she had disappeared with O'Connell. With the funeral only two hours away, Jones sped by the first parish church and onto Washington Street. Background checks showed that Boudreaux had an unblemished record. Maybe she was just smart. Coco, I'm leaving you a message. Listen and listen good. I hate to break up your little love nest, but Clayton Morris just found what happened with Webster's sickness, the irritation in his gut. It was caused by ingestion of sodium hydroxide, the same cleaner that was in the stall where the dog died. And your JB was out at the track. And there's more. You need to tell me where you are and get her back here now. Jones dropped his phone on the passenger seat. Maybe Coco truly liked J.B. And, and was shielding her from trouble. Over the small hill south of town, Webster's house and the back shed came into focus. A hint of smoke lingered in the warm air across rows of rolling corn stalks on the Harvey Miller farm. 
He moved up the rutted dirt drive and stopped behind Webster's truck. A heavy gray haze hung over the yard. From the shack's metal stovepipe, a thin white smoke continuously blended into the summer air. Jones exited the Jeep and walked along the grass, separating the driveway ruts. He looked in the window of Webster's polished truck. Even the inside was clean and the tools organized. Strickland had found nothing, but Jones spotted a discarded package of smooth relief stomach tablets under the seat. He opened the door and pulled out the package. Inside was a sales slip dated last Sunday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. from Duggan's Drugstore in Hamilton, after the Ocean Stakes. Less than a day later, Webster had left Hamilton Bay in the maintenance-free. He tucked the sales slip in his pocket and pivoted across the grass to the shack. The door was held open by a hook on the outside boards. Harvey Miller, in his blue suit and red tie, looked up from the table. Harvey, Harvey, what are you doing here? Harvey's solemn round countenance reflected an inner grief and turmoil. I can't believe he's actually dead, Matthias. Then you knew him well. Oh, we used to hold court on the world, right here. Webster never raised his voice, and I respected his opinion. Harvey removed his gold glasses and rubbed his eyes. Then he moved his fingers through his thinning brown hair. Who would want to kill Webster? I'm trying to figure that out. Guy works his ass off all his life, and for what? For her? Who, Mabel? <laughs> Mabe's got very hoity-toity. Jones sat next to the calendar. Why was she such a big spender? Harvey pushed his glasses up his nose. He shook his head and then blew his nose on a fresh white handkerchief. You know, all that spending just didn't happen overnight. What do you mean? Well, I almost dropped in my field when I see her pull up in that Mercedes. Big bucks for that car. Webster made the payments on the car. How? I told you, he worked his ass off, wherever he could get work. And who paid the bill for that big screen TV? Webster. All that work in the house? Webster again. How much did she run up? asked Jones. He wouldn't say, but he wasn't too pleased, let me tell you. Do you have any idea who killed him? No, not really. Did Webster make any special runs on that boat? No, just fishing runs. What are you saying, Matthias? Did he ever mention a Janet Boudreau, J.B., over at the Fletcher stables? No, sir. Harvey stood and walked slowly over to Jones. Why, was Webster involved in anything illegal? It's one of those big unknowns, Harvey. Well, I'm heading up to the church. When's the last time you saw Webster? Before the weekend, last week. He was okay? Yeah, we had his usual bull session in the outside shed. Jones looked at the dirt-splattered window to the truck behind the fence. Looks like somebody washed and cleaned Webster's truck. I noticed that. I'd asked Mabes about it, but she's not here. Probably at her sister's in Millbury. You know, I should have known something was up when my wife saw that state cruiser in the driveway last Monday night. You mean Tuesday night? No, Lois saw the cruiser Monday night. She brought me to the second floor window. I know it was Monday, because Harvey Jr. had just come back from a final exam that afternoon. What time Monday night? asked Jones as he stood. He pulled up about 8.30. You see a state cop? Nope, just a cruiser. That's incredible. Any number on that cruiser? No, we went back to watching TV. You think it means anything? Yeah, it means somebody from the state police had a reason to come out here Monday night. 
Midday, he decided to walk the hundred yards to Webster's funeral at the church. Just minutes before, the Lowry Insurance Agency returned his call. Jack Lowry himself told Jones what he had just told Strickland. Webster Howard was heavily insured for half a million dollars. Jones stepped down his brick walk in front of a new beige suit bought at Branahan's Clothing in Prince William. He opened his picket fence gate. The disappearance of O'Connell and Mabel bothered him, especially with the state cruiser's presence at the Howard House Monday night. Jones squinted. Duct tape surrounded a yellow envelope taped to his mailbox flag. He fiddled with the tape, bending the flag as he ripped the envelope loose. Someone had mailed him an old-style telegram. He unfolded the clean sheet of yellow paper. Jones, keep the faith, stay the course, don't give up the ship. New evidence is on the way. Hang in there. M5. Jones crunched the paper and cursed Hooper. He shook his head and crossed the road, attempting to extinguish Hooper and his clichés from his mind. As he strolled along the sunlit common, he had no proof of an O'Connell and Mabel relationship. Did they murder Webster? Cars were parked along the circular drive and back to Main Street and up to the church cemetery. Townspeople trickled into the old white church. Webster Howard would reside with his ancestors in a little more than an hour, yet his wife had not even bothered to show up at the funeral. While Jones pondered a possibility of a Mabel and O'Connell affair, even more intriguing was the possibility of O'Connell discovering the Webster-Boudreau connection. And why did he discard the R-slash-L napkin? As he paralleled the stone wall bordering the church grounds, Jones noticed Hooper busy on the second-floor balcony of the Marlboro Inn across the street. The detective gripped a long-range lens attached to his camera and a tripod. Then he picked up a pair of field glasses and scanned toward Jones. Jones's temples throbbed as he clamped Hooper's note tightly in his pocket. He reversed direction and cut across the common to the inn. Jones approached the balcony. Hey, Hooper, what the hell are you doing with the camera and the glasses? Hooper swung the binoculars. Waiting for the killer, of course. Don't you know anything about intelligence? Well, well, one of us does. What was that? He asked, leaning over the balustrade and almost fell. Let the man be buried, will you? Clyde Hooper never rests. I will photograph the killer this very afternoon. Yeah, right. Come on, put the camera away. Give Webster Howard some respect. The first rule of intelligence work, Jones, is to remove the emotional component. The first rule of intelligence work, Hooper, is to be intelligent. He held up the compressed paper. Did you tape this telegram to my mailbox? Hooper had moved out of sight, but Jones could still hear his voice. I am not at liberty to say. Besides, I don't work for you. Lock Lawson, hide me on the ball peen. Jones shook his head and marched back toward the church. Hooper's camera shutter clicked vigorously and Jones cringed as he walked along the Main Street sidewalk. Ahead, townspeople passed under the maple branches overhanging the church drive. The church's towering pillars and high steeple rose high above the pines. Chandeliers produced a pinpoint brightness inside the lengthy, paned windows. Jones turned back again to the inn. Hooper and the camera were gone. He stepped up to the drive and into the church. Jones worried whether Hooper's shenanigans would jeopardize Strickland's investigation. On the far side of the church, Nigel and Mrs. Johnson, his housekeeper, sat in a pew up front. How old is this church, Nigel? Well, it's 252 years old. 
That was a quick answer, said Jones, peering at the peeling paint on the columns. Looks like this place needs some work. Nigel should be a church tour guide, said Mrs. Johnson. Knowledge of the history of Hamilton is something not to be taken lightly, said Nigel. Yes, Dean Kent, said Jones. It would be a good summer job. You could get a trolley with a public address system. Actually, I'd enjoy such a venture. Hey, Matthias! Jones's face tightened. Arnie Dewars in his light blue, double-breasted suit looked like a family pet dressed up in human clothes for Halloween. He leaned forward. Hey, you know who knocked off Webster? Jones pointed around the church. Arnie, this is the guy's funeral. Come on. Arnie elbowed Jones as he moved by. Don't worry. Detective Hoople will solve it. He's not a detective. Yeah? Well, he has an intelligence background. He found rats in my paint department over the yard. Rats? Yeah, we thought the kids were breaking into the stores. Just rats. Jones winced and studied the photocopied yellow program with Webster's name in bold letters with birth and death dates below. A Latin phrase was typed in the lower right-hand corner. Ex uno DC omnis. What does that mean, Nigel? Nigel spoke without looking at the program. From one, judge the rest. Well, that's certainly appropriate, said Jones. Who put that on the program? I do not have to answer that question. Nigel, I'm shocked, said Jones, as Arnie continued cackling behind him. Yeah, so we were doing shots down at Crapo's bar, and this broad comes strolling over. Mr. Dewars, please, said Nigel, turning. What did I say? Beat me to the punch, Nigel. Arnie is most aggravating. Jones nodded and panned the church. The spacious interior, held together by cracked wood buttresses, spanned the ceiling and had a rich, clean, old church smell. Although several shiny brass chandeliers were lit with dozens of flame-shaped bulbs, the outside light from the lofty windows provided the primary illumination. Pews were white with wood-stained trim and boxed in sections along the short pile red rug. To the right, a rising white paneled pulpit, draped with a green cloth, towered over the pews. The altar was simple, covered with white linen with two thick white candles on either side. Well, I'm used to a more ornate appearance inside a church, said Jones. The Hamiltons and the Fletchers built the structure, the original church, before the addition of the parsonage and the church hall in the 1940s. Old money, Nigel? Yes, that money predates the family's arrival in America. Money from Great Britain. The Hamilton money goes back through various manufacturing enterprises, culminating with their paint manufacturing today. The Fletcher money originated with the Hall Fortune shipping ventures out of London. Oh, no wonder they could build a college, said Jones. Nigel smiled and nodded. Now, most of the glass you see in the panes is original, as are most of the upper wooden buttresses. But we've noticed some structural imperfections lately. We'll have to raise money to revamp the support system while still keeping the historical integrity. Let me ask you a question, Nigel. Why not just sell that land on Washington Street to Gallagher? I wish it were that simple. I've spoken with Reverend Bricker, but I must say I was not able to make much headway. Selling that land is a perfect, clean way to get money to the structure, said Jones. I don't understand it, and I don't particularly like prejudice in this day and age. Gallagher won't give up. He's a fighter. Jones scanned the pews. Noticeably absent was Mabel Howard from the empty front pew. 
While Jones pondered a possibility of a Mabel and O'Connell affair, even more intriguing was the possibility of O'Connell discovering the Webster-Boudreau connection. With both O'Connell and Mabel missing, Jones had two theories on the murder. The first directly involved O'Connell's relationship with Mabel. O'Connell may have killed Webster, or perhaps Webster tried to kill him. But O'Connell didn't need to go to sea simply to murder Webster Howard. O'Connell would have access to the same weather data, and setting up Webster to disappear at sea would be perfect. Jones repeatedly thought about R slash L and whether O'Connell had met Webster at the mysterious location. O'Connell never turned over the evidence to Pinky, and he disappeared with his lover, Mabel Howard. Jones looked over his shoulder at Nigel and Mrs. Johnson. I don't see Hamilton Fletcher, Nigel. For some odd reason, he sent Ham. I think Ham knew Webster from the stables. Jones watched Locke in his bright green blazer, accompanied by the nimble Flo in her blue-flowered dress, squeeze into a side pew. The silver-haired L.G. Bentley in his worsted navy suit sat with his broad-boned wife in the pew behind Locke. Nigel leaned toward Jones. L.G. knows where to be, when to be there, and what to say when he gets there. Jones was drawn to the tarnished brass pipes, rising to the buttresses. Scented between the pipes was a prodigious carved matted gold-framed painting of Christ, praying and gazing up at an angel. He followed Nigel and Mrs. Johnson outside the loft. Then they moved down the staircase to the narthex, and Jones again thought about how Coco traipsed off with J.B. Facts are facts, his father used to say. And what about the red-bottomed boat? The brass organ pipes resonated above as the procession reached the narthex. Webster's simple coffin was wheeled inside the church. Jones did not see a limo. The choir's collective voices echoed around the church as the bearded Reverend Bricker, clad in white with green vestments, entered from a side door behind the altar. His blue ethereal eyes looked skyward. Even his religious cloth did not change Jones's disparaging opinion. His annoying arrogance and prejudice bothered Jones. He climbed the pulpit and checked something under the lectern. Then he looked upward again. Jones thought the gesture was not genuine. For a moment, Bricker locked eyes with Jones and then quickly turned away as he descended the pulpit stairs. Jones could not understand why Bricker would not sell the Washington Street land if just for the money. Advancing conspicuously up the main aisle, Webster Howard's flag-draped coffin brought the whole murder scenario to a tensed, anxiety-ridden level. Jones was convinced that Mabel Howard's spending habits, expensive clothes, and gambling led to a chain of events resulting in Webster's murder. Side road, mumbled Jones as the pipes blasted out amazing grace, and everyone stood. Bricker appeared on cue at the altar, clutching his red hymnal as he sang out the words. His voice was shrill, almost whining. The reverend was too melodramatic as he strutted across the altar like a king before his court ascending the pulpit in a perfectly timed maneuver, coinciding with the last verse of the song. Slowly he raised his arms from his robe, and his voice boomed outward. May the Lord be with you! He grabbed the sides of the pulpit, tilted his head, and jutted out his lower jar as if he were in deep thought. Webster Howard was a man of great faith, of piety, who traveled quietly through life's journey. His index finger rose upward like a hot air balloon. Equipped with the virtuous qualities of the common man, Jones leaned toward Nigel. Too much drama, Nigel. He has every Sunday to practice. The animated bricker assumed an intense but scary control over his congregation. 
Every sentence was clearly enunciated, each change in cadence accentuated with a sincerity even Jones began to believe. Bricker whispered at the appropriate passages and raised his voice to stress the tragedy of Webster Howard's untimely death. During his talk, the Reverend asked his people to become more like God. Jones shook his head. To achieve that inner and outer peace, to avoid the derision and hatred of the modern-day world. We must extend our hands in joy rather than anger, to give to God and not satisfy our own selfish ends. He ought to listen to his own words, said Jones. Nigel motioned with his finger over his mouth for Jones to be quiet. Bricker finally finished his eulogy and nodded to the choir loft. Everyone stood and sang, Near of my God to thee. Bricker led the procession down the main aisle. He continued a litany of prayers and salutations, quoting frequently from the Bible as Webster Howard's coffin inched forward. Jones stared at the flag and was determined to find the location of this R-L and match that long red paint scrape on the maintenance-free to a specific vessel. Under the maples and pines across the knoll, amidst the simple weathered gravestones, Bricker began the rhetoric again. The white clapboards surrounded the dark, elongated windows, reflecting the graveyard. The reverend's over-generalized remarks bordered on disingenuous. Jones walked around the crowd assembled under the canopy. Bricker quoted from the Book of Revelation as Jones studied the two slate stones behind the raised casket. More gravestones stuck up the hillside grass containing dozens of Howard names spanning the centuries. He saw Webster not only as a handyman, but a man whose lineage went back several hundred years. To his right, next to the cemetery entrance, Coco stood next to his gray BMW. He wore a short leather coat and dark slacks. When he spotted Jones, he gave a half-hearted salute. Matthias, are you going to the reception in the Paris Hall? What was that, Nigel? I asked if you were going to the reception in the parish hall. You're welcome to tag along with us. Jones watched Coco smoking a cigarette near the car. Thanks, Nigel. I'm going to hitch a ride with Mr. Stefani. Oh, did he know Webster? Uh, Webster helped groom his horse. Jones looked back to the crowd, dispersing back to the church, and then at the numerous Howard headstones. Webster's ancestors go way back. Nigel and Mrs. Johnson started toward the cars parked along the drive. Most ancestors do. Very funny, said Jones, smiling. Jones walked up the inclined road to Coco behind the fence. Jonesy, he said, I owe you an apology. Why is that? J.B. and I had uh, an extended conversation. Jones leaned on the car. And? She's afraid. One of the reasons she took off with me. Afraid of what? Somebody spiked Howard's thermos. Driscoll said she gave Webster the thermos. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Coco, why carry that over to the track? Coco, I think she blamed Webster for her dog's death. That's when she flipped out. Then she was gone. That afternoon. There I am, standing in front of Mount San Jacinto. Where the hell is that? We were in Palm Springs. I don't know where she is. Is that where you were? Jones paced in front of the car. You need to tell this to Strickland. She tried to get Webster with the cleaner. I ain't telling Strickland nothing. For what? Because it looks like she had a reason to kill Webster 
and she may have tried twice. Yeah, she thought it looked bad. What about proximity, the stables, and the marina bridge? Coco threw the cigarette like a dart onto the pavement and then snuffed it out. Strickland is already looking for her. He is. What about that restaurant? R slash L. Listen, why don't you come back to the club with me? We can ask around about R slash L. I'm going to the parish hall, but I'll check in with you later. He looked into his friend's cold eyes. You really liked her, didn't you? He stared at Jones for a few seconds, but he didn't speak. Yet Jones could see the pain in his eyes. I'll catch you later at the club. He got in the BMW and the door closed. The engine hummed and he pulled onto Route 32. Jones looked back toward the common and then crossed through the cemetery for the ten-minute walk back to the church. Inside the parish hall, the conversational buzz overtook the grieving graveside faces. Jones kept looking out the smaller modern vinyl windows at the canopy and the surrounding graves. Something about those graves troubled him. What are you, deep in thought? asked LG to his right. LG, solve it yet? Nah. LG, did you ever hear of a restaurant called R slash L? The wrinkles moved up LG's forehead. No, does that relate to the murder? The napkin on Webster's boat. Tom McGill has searched up and down the coast on the internet. Try another name. Suppose they change names. Well, that's a good point. Bricker had quickly changed into a sports shirt and jeans, and he walked from the corridor with a tall brunette and two other silver-haired women who laughed at every utterance out of his mouth. The younger woman stood rigid with a dour look on her face. Bricker's in love with himself. Well, he's more flamboyant than some of them we've had in here, said LG. Everything becomes a production with him. A lot of drama. Plus, he should sell that Washington Street land to Father Gallagher. The tall woman drifted away from Bricker as more parishioners surrounded him. Is that his wife? Yes, that's his wife. Jones crossed his arm and lifted his brow. I don't think she's entirely pleased to be playing second fiddle to the Reverend. He's a showman, that's for sure. Perhaps he should have gone into the law. LG smiled. If you're not a showman, they won't listen to a word you say. Jones thought back to Bricker arguing at LG's office the other night. Well, he certainly was putting forth his opinion up in your office the other night. LG's head swung around. Time to pull the shades. He was pretty mad. Oh, I can't break privilege, but suffice to say you don't yank out a socket wrench when you bring your car into the shop and start working alongside the mechanic. Giving you a little advice, was he? I ended by asking him if he'd like me to go with him up in the pulpit on Sunday morning. Oh, ha, ha. Oh, come on. What's the matter? Asked LG, turning, but Hooper ducked from view. Hooper. Who? Hooper. That so-called P.I. that Lark hired. The guy's a loon. Jones stood on his tiptoes, but Hooper was not outside. Hooper's an accident waiting to happen, and to top it off, he has Bucky Driscoll working alongside him. Bucky Driscoll, the bull in the china shop of life. Jones chuckled. Very succinct, counselor. Call me if you need me. I will. Thank you, LG. Arnie Dewis, red punch swishing in his glass, cackled loudly with lock and flow over at the window. Yes, oh, yeah, cool. Those are great games, Lark. Yeah, I remember all that stuff. We go get tanked up before we watch the game. Jones moved along the wall to avoid a prolonged conversation with either Lark or Arnie. He picked up a china plate on the buffet table and loaded several sandwich slices. When he reached the huge chrome coffee urn, he opened the spigot. 
Bricker, joking with the two women, appeared next to him. The Reverend finished his coffee and seemed taken aback when he saw Jones. I'm real surprised to see you here, Jones. What do you mean by that? Did Father Gallagher allow you to commune with the competition? Jones tried to make light of Bricker's hostility. Actually, I called the Pope this morning in Rome to get clearance. He said he'd make an exception for you, Reverend. I see. His eyes were steely and his mouth turned down within his beard. By the way, I did enjoy your homily. You have a gift. Homily? You mean sermon. We call it a sermon. When in Rome, do as the Romans. Jones set down his coffee cup. I wasn't aware that you would compare First Parish to Rome. Touché! And if you're trying to humor me about that land, you can forget it. Jones shrugged his shoulders. No, I understand you're adamant. Bricker placed his cup under the spigot. He filled it to the top and motioned Jones to the side near bookcases in the corridor. Before he spoke, he made sure that they were away from the crowd. You will inform your father Gallagher that he can forget his intrusion into Hamilton. You aren't even using that land, Bricker. The land is free and clear. What authority is keeping you from selling that land? Bricker shook his head, drank his coffee, and set the cup on the bookcase. How typical of you people. You need all the answers in some canon law or a papal encyclical. Oh, come on, Bricker. I think this has gone far enough. I will use all legal means to keep you people from attacking my church. Your church? Yes, my church. My followers. People with open minds who aren't tainted by traditions and rules. Hey, you're out of line, you know that? Several people turned. Bricker snarled and moved closer. Maybe it's time you just left. Oh, go ahead, say it. Left my church. Don't talk about rules and tradition. The primary doctrine keeping this church together is ego. Bricker's knuckles whitened and his cheeks flushed. Get out! The hall was silent and Jones took one step toward the outside door but stopped. Is that what the man of God proclaims? Throw his enemies out of the worship hall? Bricker spread his arms outward and his eyes were glazed. And they came to Jerusalem and they entered the temple and began to drive those out who sold and bought in the temple. Hey, Reverend, Jones scanned the hushed hall. Even Arnie Dewars was quiet. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jones said nothing and glanced briefly at LG as he neared the outside door. And he taught them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Jones held the doorknob. Oh, let me finish the passage, Reverend. But you have made it a den of robbers. Get out! Jones opened the door and stepped into the warmer air. He looked ahead, his heart beating wildly, and just stared at the common. As he started down the stairs, Hooper's voice cut through the summer air. I say that was a bad move, Jones. Yeah, it was real bad. Oh, boy, you blew it, said Bucky's voice. Jones looked around the church grounds. Where are you, Hooper? He has a loyal group of followers, Jones. Hooper, where are you? and he'll never give up the land. Hey, Matthias, said Arnie as he ran down the church steps. Arnie, said Jones as he kept walking. 
Hey, how about the Buckster? Hired as an intelligence agent. Everyone inside the church was nervous. This was a funeral, Arnie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jones moved away from Arnie and started down the circular drive. He spun around when he heard Hooper's voice again. The pseudo-detective's boots stuck out from underneath the parish hall steps. He marched back to the steps and grabbed Hooper's boots and dragged him into a cluster of rhododendron. Hooper stood and brushed his olive fatigues. You know, you're really starting to get under my skin with your hiding and your camera. The heart of counterintelligence. Okay, Mr. Counterintelligence, who killed Webster Howard? I am not at liberty to say. Oh, Hooper, shut up. Jones moved down the drive again. Hey, you shouldn't interfere with the investigation, chided Bucky. Jones stepped back and went up to the rotund Bucky. Hey, Bucky, back off. Detective Hooper knows important people. Who, Porky Pig and Donald Duck? Bucky tilted his head as if he were trying to figure out what Jones had just said. Strickland's cruiser rounded the common and pulled onto the church drive. Oh, George, thank God. Strickland rolled down the window. Matthias, get in. Am I under arrest for provoking a preacher? Jones slid into the front seat. No, we're heading out to Hanson's Marina. Someone ripped apart the maintenance tree last night. Reverend Bricker's obstinance against Father Gallagher buying the Washington Street land continues, and Webster Howard is buried in the cemetery behind the church. But last night, as the chapter ends and the episode ends, someone broke into the maintenance free. Keep the faith. Stay the course. Don't give up the ship. New evidence is on the way. Hang in there. Done deal. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.